0: Hello everybody and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Avi Stamen, your new co-host of Scholarly Communication alongside Daniel Shea. When I'm not podcasting, I dedicate most of my time to my lovely family, mountain biking, and running my company, Academic Language Experts. At Academic Language Experts, we help academic scholars, researchers, and science professionals with translation, editing, writing, and publication support for their research. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Dr. Rosina lippi green Just a word about our guest before I let her speak for herself. Uh, Rosina grew up in Chicago and has lived for long periods in in westernmost Austria, England, New Jersey, and Michigan. She attended the University of Illinois as an undergraduate and received her PhD in linguistics from Princeton, where her interest in critical language theory and language-focused discrimination took hold. After 15 years in academia, she left her position at the University of Michigan in 2000. Since then, she has been busy as a consultant, editor, writer, and historical novelist. Since its initial publication, Rosina's book, English with an Accent, has provoked debate and controversy within classrooms through its in-depth scrutiny of American attitudes towards language. Rosina discusses the ways in which discrimination based on accent functions, based on accent, Functions to Support and Perpetuate Social Structures and Unequal Power power Relations. Rosina, thank you very much for joining me today.
1: Oh, you're very welcome. I'm glad to be here.
0: Well, I I have to say this is a really fascinating topic for me because I spend day in, day out um, working with scholars, uh, most of whom uh, would be traditionally called um, non-native English scholars or English as a second language uh, scholars who are trying to further their career and trying to publish um, and compete really alongside their contemporaries in their specific fields. And I, I find that, you know, on a da- on a weekly, if not daily basis, um, we're coming up against these issues of scholars trying to write it in English um, who, who, who may not, you know, uh, that, that may not be their first, sometimes it's their second language, sometimes it's their third or fourth. Um, so anyway, I, I'm just curious, you know, um, you know, to, to hear how you, you know, how you see this, you know, the situation of, of publication um, within the academic landscape and, you know, and English being the lingua franca.
1: Sure. Well, first of all, I have to say that uh, my research and focus was on the spoken language. so I know quite a bit about the way uh, lecturers and professors who do not speak English as their first language uh, I, I know a lot about the issues that come up for them in terms of accent in a classroom uh, as far as writing is very different of course the the written and the spoken languages are such different creatures that it's possible that you could be completely fluent in in English but still have a, uh, you know, a, I don't know, uh, uh, a Chinese or a, or a Swedish or whatever accent, even though you, according to a native speaker, you never misstep grammatically, it's still obvious to that speaker that, that you're not a, a, a native speaker of English. And, and that will have repercussions. Maybe good, maybe bad, but it'll have repercussions. Whereas that same person may be able to write um, English completely fluently with no uh, indication of non, non-native speaker grammar. And then it's a very different issue because if you're going to get reactions from editors or publishers or readers, it won't be based on the language, it'll be based on other cues such as an ethnic name or uh, the university that they come from. So it's a, so you see that it's a very, unless you're writing about language, unless the academic is actually publishing on the topic of language, then it becomes a little more complicated.
0: But uh, is, is that what you meant? Interesting, okay, um, yeah, no, it definitely is what i meant and and I think you make a really interesting point, which is that you know even if um, the language of the said scholar is surpasses maybe that of their contemporaries um, simply the 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 fact of the accent or the name, something very I guess we would say superficial or external can have such a deep impact on us um, I, I I recall. There was a time where uh, we had a we were editing a paper, um, and you know whenever you edit a paper in the margins, there it says the name of, of of who's editing it, and the woman who was editing the paper for us, her name was Irina, and I received a complaint from the client, which was fairly shocked about that Irina is obviously not a native English speaker because there are no native English speakers who are named Irina, and therefore what was she doing editing the paper, which I found quite humorous if for no other fact that Irina is actually an adjunct lecturer at Columbia University, who has some of the best English that I've ever come across. Um, so I think your point is very salient, but, but maybe you can tell me a little bit more about your research and, and what did you uncover when you started talking to some of these scholars or maybe even some of the students about their experiences?
1: Well, I think one of the most interesting uh, uh studies out there was done some years ago and I keep hoping that somebody will repeat this study uh, in Florida at a university um, where they they had t- two female professor types middle-aged both dr- dressed almost identically one was Asian one was uh, American and they were both native speakers of English and they had uh, they had these two women uh, read short five-minute lectures in in uh, to classes to lecture classes where they weren't known, so they were like a, a visiting professor in that class. And then there were um, comprehension, uh, you know, a very short comprehension quiz. And they did this for a number of different topics. They did it for humanities. They did it for a science topic. They did it, you know, a couple of different things. And what, they, what, what the, the shocking result was, was that if the students were looking at an Asian lecturer, they did much more poorly on the, on the comprehension tests on the, on the quiz. Than if they were looking at a Caucasian American one, so so and they were hearing exactly the same thing, but they were but they they, they imagine it is possible to imagine an accent and to construct uh, about a barrier to communication on the basis of that imagined accent. So, you know, to me that is. Uh, Uh, particularly telling. And I think anybody who's lectured for any amount of time uh, in a, in a complex setting where you have faculty from, you know, various parts of the world will have heard commentary about this kind of thing from students. Um, I, I know I certainly did constantly,
0: but. Can you, can you expand upon that a little bit? What exactly did you hear from, from students? I'm curious.
1: Well, I, I I taught intro to linguistics and that was about 300 students and I had two or three uh, teaching assistants who were graduate students in linguistics and sometimes they were uh, not American. I had uh, one year, I had one American graduate student and I had two Japanese graduate students so from Japan and so they spoke English with, with an accent, both of them. And... Um, the first year that that happened, I got complaints right away. Um, I don't want, uh, I, I, I don't understand this person. When we're in discussion hour, I, I don't like her accent. I want to be in the other session. And then I would have a little, you know, one-on-one about language-focused discrimination. And I almost never moved people on that basis. Uh, then the next year, what I did was I started... The course, the first day of the course, I said, uh, okay, uh, I want you to recognize that we have, you know, one lecturer here. Uh, she is from, you know, I forget where she was from. I think she was from China. And um, English is her second language. She speaks grammatically perfectly, but you will hear her accent. And, um, I went into how you uh, work in a situation like that, if there is goodwill on both sides, to uh, uh, bypass any difficulties that the accent might cause. Very simple things, you know, about raising your hand and saying, I'm sorry, could you repeat that? Or uh, could you write that down? That kind of thing. So I went through this whole little spiel, about 10 minutes worth, and I, uh, and then they, they uh, the st- all my students signed a, a statement at the beginning of this semester that said basically, uh, I've listened to this lecture, I know what the grading process is, I know how absences affect my grade, blah, 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 I understand about the policy about uh language barriers and language commun- and communication. I've got all that. And they signed that form. Uh, so that year I got almost no complaints about the, the student who had an, the graduate student who had an accent. But I don't know, three weeks into the course, uh, somebody came in and said, uh, yeah, I don't like I don't like this. I don't understand her. I don't understand her accent. And I said, I looked for their form and they didn't have the form because, and, and he had been absent on that first day. And I said, oh, okay. So then that year I had to do <laughs> the lecture one-on-one uh, just once rather than you know, 23 times. And, um, and after that, I always did that at the beginning of any course that I was teaching and it made a big difference. Uh, I think just making people aware of the, uh, okay, let's say it this way. People who are not inherently biased um, and who are willing to uh, work towards communication, once you hand them the tools and make them aware, they're fine. Um, People who come in with a particular bias toward a race or a ethnicity or some other social characteristic, they will resist, and um, that you have to deal with in a different way, so.
0: Yeah, that's, I I love that, because I think that we spend a lot of time, as in society, you know, bemoaning the ills of discrimination and racism, as we should, Um, but to actually hear how you were able to sort of turn it on its head, and the immediate results that you saw, I mean, you know, obviously that, I don't know. It, it should be modeled and copied. I don't know if everyone would have as good results as you did. But but, um, you know, to see that turnaround or the or the drastic difference, I think, is is quite inspiring, to be honest, because I think that it shows that, you know, little things it's 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 a you know, how many minutes did you spend discussing this? Probably no more than two or three minutes um, can make can make a, a difference in in the whole course. Um, yep, and it can. And now I'm now I imagine however um, that it wasn't all so pretty especially in your research did you come across so you know you, you've mentioned that for many for many individuals it's it's a you know a subconscious bias which the more we become aware of uh, the more we can d- deal with and address but did you actually come across either in your own teaching or in your research sort of explicit um, you know bias and, Discrimination. and yeah. yeah
1: oh yeah mm-hmm um, I, you know, people who would say things like, okay, well, maybe I can't call it ungrammatical. Maybe historically, and if you look at the structure of the language, it's not wrong. Uh, Axe versus ask. Are you familiar with that uh, variant? So that so Axe was very uh, much used until just a couple hundred years ago. But now it's associated primarily with, in the U.S., with people of color uh, from, especially from uh, African American English communities, uh, and also most people don't realize this with uh, second and third generation Italian Americans on Long Island and in New Jersey. Um, they, you will also hear that from them. So if you, if you ever watch the movie My Cousin Vinny, you'll hear it there. So people say. I asked you a question instead of I asked you a question. Okay, so then you, I had a, somebody say to me in class, all right, well, okay, I can't call that wrong. Technically, I can't call it wrong, but it hurts my ears and I don't want to hear it. And, you know, I would say, so if I said it like that, or if Professor so-and-so said it like that, would would there be a difference there? And sometimes they would think about it and admit that it was in fact Racially motivated, um, but many of them—not many—but I did have students that would cross their arms and just sit back and say, "You know, it's my choice." And I would say, I—I I had one student come out directly and say at the end of the semester, "Well, I, you know, I fought your tooth and nail. I didn't think that you—it was sound." These you know, your theories, but okay. So I've looked at all of the evidence and I see the basis for what you're lecturing. And I, I can't deny this, but I don't, I just don't want to have to deal with people who sound like this. And if that means that I don't want to deal with people from Asia or people from Africa, then, you know, that's my choice. And I, and I said, well, yeah, it is your choice unless your choice impacts the rights of the person you're dealing with. So you can't not hire, hire somebody because you don't like the fact that they grew up in Kenya or Japan or whatever. Um, and if you do that anyway, and there's somebody paying attention, uh, then you're in violation of the civil rights act and you could in fact get dragged into court and that would be appropriate. Uh, but of course, yeah. So that's basically the kind of stuff that I went into personally.
0: Yeah. And I, and I think that, you know, I, I'm, I'm recalling this, this uh, uh, incident that happened once where we were translating a text from Arabic to English. It was actually a, a play. It was a fascinating play. Um, and, the scholar, um, the scholar uh, wanted it to be in Shakespearean form, so it was quite the challenge. Um, and I believe that one of the main characters he wanted to call the overseer. And if I'm not mistaken, overseer has certain connotations, um, you know, going back to slavery, um, which are which are far from positive. And it took it took a good you know five ten minute conversation to really convinced that scholar and, and it wasn't due to any sort of, you know, um, you know, lack of sensitivity. I think it was just a naivete about the loadedness of, of the term and how it was being used. And I think that, you know, those who are, you know, closing their ears to understanding or being sensitive actually can run the risk, you know, aside from being, you know, at the, aside from civil rights and you know run the risk of sounding very foolish as well. Um, and you know as, as someone who lives as a native English speaker but in a in a country you know in a non- Anglo country um, you know you are forced into you know into understanding and realizing that not everyone is going to be able to speak to you and you're right. So anyway, I, I just think there's you know maybe ignorance is bliss but but in this case it's it's really not.
1: Well, yeah, you, you know, you also get the other thing that you run into and in this, not in an academic setting so much, but you get people saying, well, I don't understand. He's been here for five years, 10 years. Why doesn't he speak English like I do? Why does he have that heavy accent? And I could sit there and explain to them the actual neurological stuff in the black box and language acquisition and all of that. But really the question is, uh, um do you not understand this person and if you really pursue that you'll find out that they they do understand the person they just don't like having to deal with the accent Rosina um, i do want
0: i want to i want to yeah. push back a little bit and, and and because i've i've been think there's been a question that's weighing on my mind um and, and and maybe i'm drawing on my own experiences um with translation but what we see with translation one of our biggest challenges and struggles is that we find that even if we render a, a let, take Japanese or Russian, for example, those are two good languages, uh, the, the structure and the, the writing norms are so drastically different. Um, and I'm sure that speech is true as well. Meaning, what, I'm, what I guess what I'm aiming, meaning they're so drastically different than English that it's not enough to simply translate accurately or render it accurately. You actually have to sometimes rethink or restructure full paragraphs in order for them to become coherent. And, and, and. so I'm curious if in the spoken word, there may be a legitimate um, barrier from students and it's not something that they can't overcome and it's not something that should be used as an excuse, obviously. But is, could there be something beyond the accent um, that actually, from a cognitive level, does create some sort of barrier? Again, not to be used as an excuse, but maybe just to, to be aware of. Yeah.
1: Okay. Well, uh, you know, the, the first question that comes up in that context is, uh, how long has this person been studying and speaking English? Uh, because even a Japanese or a Russian speaker will, uh, you know, after a, a, a number of years will will recognize that this is a particular error for them that doesn't translate well into English. And if they don't reach that point, then, um, then that's something that they need to work on. Um, that's something that the speaker uh, needs to... Recognize that they have to come a little further in their language abilities before they're going to be able to avoid that kind of feedback. So um, it's not like every. I think what what I you have to say is that there has to be goodwill and accommodation on both sides. So um, and that I mean, usually the person with the accent is just really wanting to be. Uh, heard and read in in a market or a, a marketplace other than their own and they are willing to do whatever they have to do um, so I can't really have you actually run into a situation like that We, we,
0: what I would say is that we, we run in, I I don't know about speech. I think, you know, it's, it's something that I have to think about a bit more. I I definitely see it in the writing side that we have to make, you know, and, and there's, there's judgment calls to be made because not every, unfortunately, not every sentence can be consulted, you know, can be discussed, you know, individually. And, you know, we, we strike a balance A part of the art, what I call the art of translation is we're trying to strike a balance between honoring the the source text and the authority of the, the scholar when they wrote what it is that they wrote and not not veering from that on the one hand, yet on the other side, knowing that the only chance this individual has for publication is if the reader who or the reviewer, you know can can read it and, and, and feel like it, it's coherent and it flows and it's, so that's these are these are challenges that we kind of face every day, but they're a bit different because you know we're not face to face.
1: Sure. I guess really it's that. I mean, that's so particular to the written language that um, I would say that that's you know if you if a translator has a uh, an ongoing relationship with a uh, scholar who's Russian or Japanese, uh, that's something you know that's on a one to one basis, having to work that out. Uh, but otherwise, I really I don't see. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah, I think the distinction is important because I think that, you know, when you're having a conversation with someone, there's body language, there's asking them to repeat themselves, there's, you know, understanding from context, you know, seeing, even being able to see, you know, the, the, the emotional expression on the face can, 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 I think can give us clues and tips, which maybe we don't have in the written word. So there's definitely, well, there's of definitely. course.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's really, if you think about it, uh, there are so many, uh, uh, elements to commu- language communication that don't have to do with the voice. Um, uh, and that's all missing in the, in the written language. And that's what punctuation is supposed to replace. But punctuation can only do so much. So, uh, yeah. Um, I'm sorry. Can I just make a point that I should have made earlier? Um, when I was talking about uh, my experience with students um, who were biased or uh, whatever word you want to use about uh, graduate students with foreign accents or professors with foreign accents. It was very specific foreign accents that got a bad reaction. Mm-hmm. And if I would say, uh, if I said to them, so if this professor were French and had a French accent, would you have the same problem? They would... Uh, <laughs> they would get embarrassed, and then they would see the that oh, uh, I'm only uh, reacting to this person because she or he is from Africa or Asia, or uh, and and there's definitely a pattern there that I I need to acknowledge. So that's something I wanted to
0: interesting. And 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 how did that? Do you have a a working theory on maybe which cultures or which countries were more well accepted did it have to do with their you know socioeconomic uh
1: well uh, well, it has to do with race in the first line um so western europe uh nobody's going to have a fit about a germ usually not although there's still a little bit of um backlash from the second world war so some people will still Pause and and I would guess in Israel that's even more uh, uh, actual, but uh, France, the Netherlands, Scandinavia, uh, any of those countries, ninety I would say ninety five or more percent of um, Native American English speakers are not going to have a bad reaction to those to those accents, and they will even go out of the way to understand if the accent is very strong. So it is it is primarily race. And then secondly, there might be some ethnicity issues that uh, that are underlying the claim of lack of communication. Interesting.
0: Now, in your book, and I hope I'm quoting you pro- correctly here, um, you call linguistic discrimination the last backdoor to discrimination. And you say that the that that the door stands wide open. Can you can you explain what you mean by that?
1: Well, uh, I run into it. I see it every day, and it just amazes me. I used, uh, so you if you're reading a discussion online about topic X, and um, a person is losing the argument, let's say. That person will often strike back with comments about grammar and punctuation, and mm-hmm. say, "Well, you don't know it. How could how, you don't know anything? I mean, you can't even spell whatever, or you don't know how to use a comma." Um, now, they know nothing about that person. They don't know. Any of the history of how that person learned to read and write, they they are they attack the form rather than the substance, right? And nobody notices that. When I step in and 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 point that out, there's generally outrage. Uh, well, it's perfectly reasonable to point out when people don't speak English properly, and I. You know, my question is really, why? Why would that be? Why is it all right for you? You obviously understand this person because you've been having this discussion for a half an hour, but um, suddenly you step back and attack from a different angle, and you attack something that's really irrelevant. How this person uses commas has nothing to do with the underlying argument. Um, People do not like that. And that kind of commentary online, and I'll tell you, especially where you see it, you see it from, um, now I myself am extremely progressive in my politics, uh, but you see it from liberals and progressives who are frustrated with uh, their counterparts. And so they will strike out by calling, by pointing out what they consider to be Evidence of ignorance, which is just—it's just nonsensical. So, so I pointed this out in public lectures to academics, and I've seen them kind of flinch, because they recognize that they do this themselves—that they allow themselves to use language and language features uh, as a way to uh, um, censor and criticize. The other speaker, and once they look at it and they really look at it, they realize what they're doing. They're embarrassed. So that because that is discrimination, you know, to censor or to um, silence the other is is a is probably the most basic kind of discrimination.
0: I you know I find it I find it amazing, Rosina, that that you come from the world of linguistics because it's you know. It, it 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 feels to me, and and maybe this is taking things too far, but it feels to me that you are a linguistic scholar who is advocating for you know making the rules of language more lax as opposed to more strict. Or or as you know, we're I think we're all used to I think we're all used to sort of the you know uh, what do they call it the grammar Nazi you know or or you know linguists being the ones who are going to correct us when we you know <laughs> when we make well,
1: a. a if you think about it, I did a study about this in sixteenth for sixteenth century German. Okay, so you have this is this is really what happens, and it's it's very interesting when you think about it. It's um, uh, the language becomes a uh, uh, p- printing becomes a fact, and uh, the written language is more widely dispersed. And education starts to expand so that more than just a very small portion of the population learns to read and write. And up to that point, uh, the written language is extremely variable. It's as variable as the written language, as the spoken language, so that I can point to uh, famous people from Nuremberg and the late 1500s who spell their own names Mm -hmm. 15 different ways in different documents, their own names, okay? And that was just okay. That was like no big deal. Nobody said, what? Don't you know how to spell your own name? Um, which is what you'd get today, right? Uh, so what happened was uh, as as writing became more uh, established, uh, a whole segment of the population had a way to... Uh, Improve their positions because they could they could claim authority in terms of written language. They said, uh, "Oh, you you don't you don't you don't know how to read and write. I will do this. I'm the expert," and that just grew and grew and grew. So that today, and it's so deeply embedded that that's what, especially those of us who've had the luck to be uh, more. Uh, have longer schooling or whatever, that we're taught that this is an area of our expertise and this is something that we know and we can take pride in and we can feel superior about. And um, I know all kinds of academics who are very, uh, how can I put this, fair-minded people who will still do this. They just don't, they don't, they don't notice that there's not any logic in in, in behind it. Um, they I've had people almost in tears when um, when they've asked me about why I allow loose rules, and I'll say, "Well, give me an example." Oh, well, two negatives making a positive, and I'm like, "Well, you realize a school teacher made that up in about 1880, and and was able to propagate the idea uh, because people want to." Want the want this idea of structure and language and rules and language? We hold on to that as a kind of a basic, uh, structural good, um, and uh, nobody stops to think about it.
0: So, I, I think like the common theme from from a lot of the, what you've been saying is that there's this there's this sense or this you know common wisdom I would call it that there is correct or what I know, what I think, you know, in, in, in um, research is referred to a standard language, right? That's correct. And then, or written language, exactly. That's standard and that's correct. And then there, because there are rules um, to language and if you're following the rules, so you are following correct standard language. And then there are those who, you know, due to their own fault or not um, use incorrect language. No, no,
1: no. No, so, so no.
0: that that's sort of the common wisdom, but I, I yeah, I, that's I get the common question, wisdom. That's not right, but that's,
1: right, not- but that, that's <laughs> and that's why because people have been taught from a very early age that this is right and this is wrong, right? And they and here the basic rule about in spoken language is if this is a usage that people use that it's just used spontaneously, then it's correct. It's not wrong. Uh, now. The written language is so different because it has a different, it has to communicate information over time and space. So that is, requires more standardization. So you couldn't, right, uh, if we couldn't read and write, we couldn't build helicopters, right? I mean, you couldn't build a helicopter without written, and you know, a zillion pages of instructions about how to do that. Um, And... Uh, I'm sorry, I forgot what I was going to say there. Uh, But the fact is, is that those things, those things that we require of the written language to turn around and require them of the spoken language is backwards, right? It just doesn't make any sense. It sounds, you know, I would guess that you you are fully engaged in this whole mindset of, you know, uh, a certain class of people have learned more, about language and know more about language and have the authority to make decisions about this stuff, uh, spoken language I'm referring to Mm -hmm. uh, giving that up feels like you're losing
0: something. Yeah. Interesting. That's, that's really food for thought. That's really food for thought. I think it's, um, you know, seeing language as a, I think it starts with seeing language as a live dynamic organism and not as a Fixed code of, of of rules. I think that's you know understanding that the language is never finished. It's never you know it's never a uh, uh, complete. It's actually constantly changing uh, faster than we could possibly keep up with. Um, you know the the, the dictionary. Maybe put it in other terms. The dictionary is a reactionary um, yes. Uh, yes. text, not a. Yeah. It's yeah. It doesn't prescribe what should be. It just says what oh. is.
1: It used to. It used to prescribe what should be, and in fact, don't you hear people say, uh, "Well, that's not the dictionary definition or the dictionary pronunciation." And then you ask them, "Well, who wrote the dictionary?" You know, why are you giving that person authority to? Uh, you know, I mean, they give the word "coffee" in the U in the U.S. is has many many pronunciations, but if you look into the dictionary, we're not going to see coffee and coffee and all of that. You're just going to see one. And I said, okay, so they didn't include include those. Therefore, they shouldn't exist. They shouldn't be used. Um, it, it's just, uh, but now you're right. People, the dictionary, um, I've forgotten the word right now for people who write dic- le- lexicographers. Uh, now they are more reactionary and they and they avoid... Uh, being prescriptive. And I think that's a, that's a, that's a positive step forward. Yeah. I
0: was, I was having a conversation. I mean, you know, we we don't always necessarily think about um, the, how difficult some of this work is. I was having a conversation with, with an individual who's uh, who who plays a very senior role in, um, in in the Oxford dictionary. And he was telling me that they were stuck for months on how in the latest edition? Because sometimes they need to update definitions. They were trying to define the word "family," uh, and oh. they had a fit. they had an <laughs> absolute fit. It took them, and I'm not even sure that they were able to come up with an agreed definition, which is wild. You know, it's just totally wild. Uh, you know, think about it. And,
1: and that and that's because of changes in social structures and 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 mindset. And so and then that has to be dealt with. And yeah. Um, yeah. So, well, the same thing with, I mean, we're, you know, words for relationships are really interesting to look at over, over time, but yeah. Interesting.
0: Now, um, I know that you, you, well, I'm curious, you've, we've talked a lot about the academic context, um, but I know you're part of your, even your academic research, relates to other you know other contexts as well such as the legal system oh, yeah. uh and the media so maybe mm-hmm. you could just you know spend a minute or two talking to us about your experience in the world outside of academia and what are some of the major you know obstacles or or what what are some of the major things that happen well, in, in that
1: context I guess I guess I there's a, um this is now I guess more than 20 years old but there was an episode in Hawaii. Hawaii is really interesting in terms of language, um, because it's so diverse historically, you know, Portuguese and, uh, Filipino and, uh, different Asian communities. And they've all, you know, they've for a long time, the Japanese community was very dominant politically. Um, I don't know really that you could say that it's not dominant anymore, but not the way it used to be. Um, and then you have uh, the the people who were are, are Native Hawaiian, um, and uh, there was a okay. So let me just think a minute about how to say this. Is include all right? There was a Filipino uh, who had been living in the United States for pretty much all of his life, and who had served in the U.S. military for thirty years. Uh, who wanted to, to get more work as a ret- retired person. And he applied for a job at the DMV. And he aced every possible test. And then he did the the interviews. And the people who were interviewing him were, uh, uh, I think mo- almost all of them were Japanese uh, ethnicity. And they turned him down for the job. And they said, because people wouldn't understand him. And he sued. And uh, they, it was, it's really, uh, the case is, like it's so mind boggling that they went into court and they had one set of experts saying, well, his English is is native, it's fluent, you know, and there's no reason why people shouldn't understand him. And then on the other side, they had a speech pathologist say, there's no reason this man couldn't sound more American. There's no reason he couldn't stop sounding Filipino. Well, first of all, that's not true. But second of all, that's an imposition that should never be allowed. Uh, That's like saying, well, you, you you could go have your skin bleached so it's a lighter color. You just can't, yeah. you, you're not, it's not what we allow, uh, in terms of human dignity and, and basic human rights. And, and so they, so, so, and the judge who was white and, uh, you know, wealthy said, yeah, yeah, that makes sense to me. Yeah. That, uh, that nobody wants to listen to a, you know, talk to a Filipino in a, in this setting. And, um, uh yeah. So they they did not find for the for the plaintiff, they found for the defendant, and they and he did not get the job. And it was a it was a very big deal at the time in Japan. Um uh in Japan, excuse me, in Hawaii. Um but it's that kind of stuff I you know you run into constantly when you research this, that one person speaks up because they're being discriminated against on the basis of language, at least that's what it's being called. You know, your English isn't clear enough. Your English isn't mm-hmm. American. If you could sound more American, that that you hear a lot. If you could sound more American, mm-hmm. you know, we would we'd be happy to hire you. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, that's the kind of thing. And, you know, I see that. I see that. Oh, I see it in... Um, not so long ago, I was in a bookstore and a woman was walking through with her like 10 year old son and she was saying to him, I hate it when you talk like that. You, you, it sounds so ignorant when you talk like that. That's not the way we talk. And I thought, okay, um, there you go. That's exactly how these uh, norms are built in and, and cemented down. Uh, I don't know what it was he said. Um, but she definitely made it known that there was a right way and a wrong way, and that if he chose the wrong way, that he would be alienating himself from his home community.
0: Interesting, interesting. Yes, I, I mean, I, I, I will admit freely that I, I do tell off my kids if they speak to me rudely thing. I'd like to think that that's acceptable.
1: Yes, that certainly is acceptable. But if sure. you said to your kids, I don't like the way you say that word, you sound, right. you know, Swedish. I don't like that. Um, well, in that, in my case,
0: and probably for many expats, it's usually my kids who are telling me how to properly pronounce words and not the other way around. So, Yeah, well, know. sure,
1: I have that too as an adult daughter, she tells me that I, and she laughs at me if I get something, you know, some singer or something, I get the name
0: wrong, but nice. um, yeah. And so, so I, I want to, this has been really fascinating and, and, and enlightening, but I, I, I want to wrap things up with a few final questions. Um, I, I want to know, you know, how can we as an academic community, but just, just as, a, as general, you know, people and human beings, you know, and maybe this is a broad question, but how do we become more sensitive to to language bias and discrimination, especially considering how, you know, sort of subconscious and and and, and built in and ingrained it is from childhood. What are, you know, so I love the example you gave about, you know, making an you know, making an announcement at, at the beginning of your course, but, but what are the things we can do, you know, on a day-to-day level to just be more aware?
1: I just tell when I talk to people about this, I say all you really need to do is if you are communicating with someone who has a different uh, social network than you do and that that shows up in language, before you react, ask yourself, am I reacting to the content of what this person is saying or am I reacting to the way it's said? And that works for foreign access, that works for, you know, Local accents, so Americans reacting to Southern, Northern people in the North reacting to people in the South, um, it immediately uh, drawing on stereotype. Um, it, it just stop and just ask yourself what am I reacting to? What do I want to be reacting to? What should I be reacting to? And that will solve the problem a lot of the times. Uh, At least it will make people think harder about their own presumptions and um, biases.
0: Right, that's great. That's that's really helpful advice. Thank you. Um, I I I I know I personally appreciate that a lot. I I want I I want to you know I I think we've covered a lot of really great fascinating topics. I want to I want to finish with something. You know, maybe a bit lighter, and 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 your your bio fascinates me. Um, back to you for a minute, uh, because it seems like at a certain point you sort of uh, opened the door and left the academic world and went into a world of went into the world of fiction. Um, so maybe tell us just a little bit. I should have opened with this, but but we'll we'll finish with it. Um, tell us a little bit about about, you know, how the evolution of your career and what you've been working on more recently, because this book is not a, you know, the, we're, we're talking about topics that you covered already 20, 30 years ago, um, and and how people can, you know, kind of follow your, your more recent work and, 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 and reach out if they have, you know, they have questions.
1: Um, well, I left academia for a lot of very complicated reasons, uh, and I still had to make a living, I had tenure. I gave up tenure when I left. Um, and uh, uh, I I've always been able to write well, and I had always been interested in writing fiction, and I just had to f- figure out how I wanted to approach it. And one of my one of my main irritations with uh, the American school system is how badly history is taught. So um, I decided that I wanted to um, take little pictures of different times and places and build a story around that so that I could try to get closer to the truth of what things were like. Um, so uh, so for example, I, I wrote um, a novel that was, uh, I wrote two novels, but the, the second one is more the issue about the War of 1812 because I guarantee you that 99% of Americans, if you ask them about the War of 1812, they're gonna tell you, huh? You know, what's that? What? Wh- who were we at war with? But, you know, if you say, well, you know, they, they burned Washington. What, they burned Washington? Yeah, Yes, they certainly did. They burned Washington. Um, and, and who was that with, that was with England? No, that was the Revolutionary War. No, I'll say no. That was war of eighteen twelve. So I, so I wanted to write a novel that was engaging, that would. My goal is always to have people so interested in the story that they can't put it down, and then when they do put it down, to say, "Wow, can that be true? I better go look that up," and they do. You know, I get email all the time from people saying, "I knew nothing about this," or even my own husband said to me, "Wow, sugar trains—the they called them sugar trains trains in the South when they had slaves uh, working in uh, sugar uh, sugar burning—and um, it's pretty horrific stuff." Uh, And he's English. So, you know, I thought, well, you know, he's forgiven for not knowing any of this, but. uh,
0: Well, that that makes two of us, you know. My spouse is also (laughs) English. So there you go. (laughs) Ah, Okay. Yeah.
1: So, yeah. So that's really how I got. I mean, I, I started for practical reasons writing fiction, and I, you know, I can tell a story. And I had a, a focus and I had a kind of a theme and that just took off. So that's, I, you know, I, I'm not Stephen King popular, but um, I have a good following and I've been making a living at it for some time now. So, um, yeah. So that's what I do.
0: Brilliant. I, I, yeah, I don't mean to um, to psychoanalyze you, but I, I, I feel like there's a common thread throughout the, the work that you're doing, which is. And, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, because it could be. I'm totally off. Um, but I feel like you have a desire to show people a different perspective um, or enlighten them on things that maybe they weren't able to see, whether it's in the language, sociolinguistic context or whether it's in, you know, hist- the historical context, to be able to shed light on on things in a way that people may not have thought about. Yeah, in that
1: way. if people... Yeah, people will look at differently. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. That's kind of my basic uh, approach to living and in life. Um, Yeah, I think that's true. I I wouldn't. uh, I you know I can think of worse ways to.
0: (laughs) to It was was definitely meant as a compliment, not as an insult. Yes. yes, Okay. Brilliant. All right, well, Rosina, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, I I really have enjoyed having you on, um, and I think that our listeners also, you know, will have gotten a lot from 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 hearing from your experience. So, thank you so much. Um, best of luck with your continued uh, novels. Don't don't stop talking about you know language discrimination. Also, because I think that it's yeah, it's it, it's it's in your blood. And, uh, and I hope that, yeah, I hope that we get to, you know, have, have conversations again in the near future.
1: Yes, that would be great. All right. Thank you so much. This was great fun, Avi.